Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 197th episode of the Nauticast, titled Back in Black, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, John 6, in which John finally comes home to Castle Black, only to learn there's barely anyone holding down the fort, and that Elsie Mormont was killed by his own men, and Winterfell burned down, and oh yeah, looks like your brother's Brandon Rickon are dead. Maybe he should have stayed in that cave with Egret after all. Things suck out here. How much of this can we just blame on Theon? I'm going to go between 100 and 120%. <laughs> ideally, somewhere in that range. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, Ken, who asks, how do you think John's story plays out differently if he never gets elected Lord Commander? That's a good question. I mean, I guess it, I guess it really depends on who gets elected instead of him. Yeah, I don't even know where to start with this one, because based on the sequencing at the end of A Storm of Swords, John seems to have made up his mind to turn down Stannis' offer before he even finds out what's going on with the Night's Watch election. So I don't think like all of a sudden he's like, okay, maybe I'll go take Stannis' offer now, because he that was not really part of that calculus there. This is so hard because... I think John's one of the only people who would have his strategy post-election, you know? Like maybe Samwell or Gren, the people who were on the Great Ranging who survived might have this kind of, we need to get the wildlings on this side of the wall and we need to, you know, prepare our defenses and, you know, kind of garrison the other castles. But the people who were at Castle Black or Eastwatch or the Shadow Tower, they didn't see the White Walkers or the others. So they would probably just win the election and be situation normal. You know, the three... Castle, castle stay garrisoned, we do our normal rangings, we try to clear the woods, we patrol the walls. I don't think anything happens. So then wh- where does that leave John? He's a steward. Um, so he's just kind of hanging out there. Maybe Maester Aemon stays at the wall and maybe there's some good Targaryen history knowledge impartation happening. Um, or maybe they send him out to do some stuff, you know, north of the wall just because, well, you are an able-bodied man and we're kind of lacking for those right now. Um, but I just... It's really hard to say where his story is because he's already done the whole adventure beyond the wall and, you know, find the king beyond the wall. And he hasn't quite faced down the White Walkers, but we assume that's kind of an endgame thing for Jon Snow. Um, He'll be dealing with the, you know, he's dealt with the Whites and stuff already. So um, I really have no idea where to place this because everything he would do seems to be stuff he's already done at this point in the story. Exactly. I mean, that's part of why it's so satisfying when he gets elected Lord Commander, because the first time through, you're like, okay, a way out. That makes sense. <laughs> that's something you haven't done yet. That's something that wouldn't you wouldn't be retreading ground on. And yeah, I think you make a good point that I think Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister, well, I think they'd be fine choices would probably be status quo oriented or, you know, getting getting one over on the one who didn't get elected would be their main focus. <laughs> Screwing over the loser in that election would probably be the priority. But I think if if instead of them, if Jano Slint got elected Lord Commander, John Stan, the watch would be a pretty short one. I think Slint would either have him killed or find a way to get, you know, arrange for him to be shot from behind uh, at some point, or Alistair Thorne would take care of that. I think if one of the more sensible ones ended up in charge, I could see a situation here where maybe John ends up being the ambassador to Tormund. Maybe they send him out to try to make a peace deal of some kind with the Wildlings. 
And then, yeah, I don't know, whoever the, the next Lord Commander is then has to be the one to deal with Stannis. And that's a that's that's not an easy task on the on the nicest of days. So who knows how they, they deal with that or the question of where their loyalties would lie. In that scenario, yeah, Sam also probably stays at the wall. Who knows what ha- ripple effects that has down the line, depending on what his, his plot contribution is. He probably hangs out the wall because he doesn't need to, to be a... To be a replacement for Maester Aemon. So John himself might end up better off, but the the fate of the Night's Watch in the world, probably, probably less so. So thank you so much to Ken for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular episodes. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, John 6, so let's jump into the synopsis. You know how you're not supposed to beat a dead horse? Well, John is almost literally doing that, because that's how desperate he is to reach Castle Black before the Wildlings. To be fair, he's as hard on himself as he is on the horse. He can't afford to rest long enough to let his arrow wound heal, so it just rips open every time he mounts up. And that's how I know I'm not cut out to be a hero. I would absolutely just lie down and die at that point, the way John almost did in his last chapter. Between his wound and the stress, John is so out of it he starts riding the wrong way a couple times. Even when he finds the King's Road and, you know, all he has to do is go straight, he almost blows right through Molestown. All that keeps him going is the thought of his friends in the watch. Hob would be with his kettles, Donal Noy at his forge, Maester Aemon in his rooms beneath the rookery. And the old bear? Sam, Gran, Dolorosad, Dywin with his wooden teeth. John could only pray that some had escaped the fist. Egret was much in his thoughts as well. He remembered the smell of her hair, the warmth of her body, and the look on her face as she slit the old man's throat. You were wrong to love her, a voice whispered. You were wrong to leave her, a different voice insisted. He wondered if his father had been torn the same way when he'd left John's mother to return to Lady Catelyn. He was pledged to Lady Stark, and I am pledged to the Night's Watch. Oh, Ned sure was torn up inside, John. Just uh, just not at all how you think. At Molestown, John swaps out his poor tired horse for a fresh one, and warns the villagers to follow him to Castle Black before the wildlings show up. As the stars fade, the wall appears, pink and purple in the light of the rising sun. It's a welcome sight, but it's the only one, because Castle Black itself seems deserted. No lights in the towers. No one on the stairs. The only sign of life is a faint wisp of smoke coming from the armory. John limps his way over and finds Donal Noy inside, working the forge as usual. Despite fever, exhaustion, his leg, the Magnar, the old man, Egret, Mance, despite it all, John smiled. It was good to be back. Good to see Noy with his big belly and pinned-up sleeve, his jaw bristling with black stubble. Aw, that's heartwarming. Enjoy the sight while you can, John. Donal is not long for this world. Donal says that Jarman Buckwell, one of the men Elsie Mormont sent scouting way back at the Fist of the First Men, recently came back to Castle Black, saying that his scouts saw John riding with the wildlings. John admits it. Donal, very politely, asks if he ought to disembowel John on the spot for that, but John declares he was following Corrin Halfhand's orders. And more importantly, where is everyone? Defending the wall against your wildling friends. Yes, but where? Everywhere. Harma Dog's head was seen at Woods Watch by the pool. Rattle Shirt at Longbarrow, the Weeper near Icemark, all along the wall. They're here, they're there, they're climbing near Queen's Gate, they're hacking at the gates of Greyguard, they're massing against East Watch. But one glimpse of a black cloak, and they're gone. Next day they're somewhere else. John swallowed a groan, 
faints. Mance wants us to spread ourselves thin, don't you see? And Bowen Marsh has obliged him. The gate is here. The attack is here. It's not the last time John will have to clean up after Bowen Marsh's mistakes, although John is going to be a little too dead to deal with Bowen Marsh's biggest mistake. Speaking of John's blood, Donal sees that John's arrow wound has opened up yet again. John is looking pretty bad all over, actually, so Donal drags him off to see Maester Aemon. John warns him that there are wildlings south of the wall, 120 of them on their way to open the gate for all their friends. And how many watchmen are left to stop them? 40, says Donal Noy, literally the weakest and rawest recruits they have. The news just keeps getting better. The only good news is that Donal is the de facto commander of Castle Black at this point. Bowen Marsh officially puts Sir Winton Stout in charge, as he's the last knight remaining in the castle, but Sir Winton is a few years past his prime. Better make that decades. Donal asks about Ghost. John says he'd hoped his wolf would have made it home by now, but no such luck. Not yet. Clytus goes to fetch Maester Aemon as Donal lies John down in bed. The bird's calling out snow the whole time. Big theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. Birds are assholes. Loud, feathery assholes, even when they're saving your life, like with Sam and Gilly. Maester Aemon says John will have to share his story when he's strong enough, but in the meantime, he's got some old-timey doctoring to do, complete with a hot knife. John has just enough time before the surgery starts to learn the worst news yet. Elsie Mormont is dead, killed by his own men at Craster's Keep. John thinks about who might be chosen Lord Commander next. Certainly no one in this room, in this bed, thinking these thoughts. John thinks it would make sense for it to be either Cotter Pike or Dennis Malister, the commanders at Eastwatch and the Shadow Tower, respectively. But they're very different guys, and they don't get along one bit. Well, I'll be happy just as long as it's not Bowen Marsh. John lets them talk him into drinking milk of the poppy, and keeps talking himself to keep his mind off the pain. He tells his fellow watchmen about the Magnar of Fen, and how Mance was looking for the Horn of Winter. Aemon is just shocked to hear that Mance believes in the Horn of Winter. Well, he does and he doesn't. More on that to come. Then John fucks up and mentions Egret. Donal Noy immediately spells a story there, and John is forced to talk about his Canadian girlfriend, who's totally real, honest. <laughs> a woman of the free folk. How could he explain Egret to them? She's warm and smart and funny, and she can kiss a man or slit his throat. She's with Stir, but she's not. She's young, only a girl in truth. Wild, but she... She killed an old man for building a fire. His tongue felt thick and clumsy. The milk of the poppy was clouding his wits. I broke my vows with her. I never meant to, but it was wrong. Wrong to love her, wrong to leave her. I wasn't strong enough. The half-end commanded me. Ride with them, watch, I must not balk, I... His head felt as if it were packed with wet wool. Eamon finally shuts John up by beginning the surgery. John, like Jamie, promises himself not to scream, and, like Jamie, breaks that vow immediately. John can't stand the pain. The only relief comes when he thinks of Egret. Well, and when he finally blacks out. He dreams of her, but when he wakes up, he's alone. Or so it seems. Pip and Gren pop out of the darkness. Remember them? John's own Merry and Pippin? Pip was left behind by Bowen Marsh, but John remembers that Gren was at the Fist of the First Men, and he asks who else made it back from the Great Ranging. Dywin did. Giant, Dolores Ed, Sweet Donald Hill, Ulmer, Left Hand Lou, Garth Greyfeather. Four or five more. Me? Sam? Gren looked away. He killed one of the others, John. I saw it. He stabbed him with that dragonglass knife you made him. 
We started calling him Sam the Slayer. He hated that. Sam the Slayer. John could hardly imagine a less likely warrior than Sam Tarley. What happened to him? We left him. Gren sounded miserable. I shook him and screamed at him, even slapped his face. Giant tried to drag him to his feet, but he was too heavy. Remember in training, I would curl up on the ground and lie there whimpering. Crasters, he wouldn't even whimper. Dirk and Ola were tearing up the walls looking for food. Garth and Garth were fighting. Some of the others were raping Craster's wives. Dolores said figured Dirk's bunch would kill all the loyal men to keep us from telling what they'd done. And they had us two to one. We left Sam with the old bear. He wouldn't move, John. You were his brother, he almost said. How could you leave him amongst wildlings and murderers? Oh, come on, John. Don't blame Gren. It was all George R. R. Martin's fault, really, if you think about it. Pip says Sam might come riding up tomorrow. Don't be ridiculous, Pip. It'll be like a couple weeks. John tries to sit up and immediately regrets it. Pip wants to get Maester Raymond to give John more milk of the poppy. John's brain agrees, but his stubborn, stupid mouth says no, trying to warn them about the wildlings instead. Pip reassures John that they have scouts and sentries watching the road for the Thens, and that Maester Raymond has sent birds to the other two towers still manned on the wall asking for help. John wonders why they haven't also sent word to Winterfell and the king. By which I guess he means Rob? Who's to say? A lot of kings around these days. That's what Maester Aemon says when he comes back in, and he also delivers even more bad news for poor Jon Snow. Winterfell has fallen to Theon Greyjoy. Fact check, true. Who killed Jon's brothers Bran and Rickon? Fact check, false. Double false in that he didn't kill them, and they're not actually Jon's brothers. <laughs> Gren says that at least Ramsay's flaying Theon inch by inch. I guess that counts as a silver lining. Jon says that he saw a grey direwolf at Queen's Crown. His brothers can't be dead. Score a fact check point for John, he's more right than he knows. But it's small comfort to him as he falls into a fever dream. His head was full of wolves and eagles, the sound of his brother's laughter. The faces above him began to blur and fade. They can't be dead. Theon would never do that. And Winterfell. Grey granite, oak and iron, crows wheeling around the towers, steam rising off the hot pools in the godswood. The stone king sitting on their thrones? How could Winterfell be gone? When the dreams took him, he found himself back home once more, splashing in the hot pools beneath a huge white weirwood that had his father's face. Egret was with him, laughing at him, shedding her skins till she was naked as her name day, trying to kiss him, but he couldn't, not with his father watching. He was the blood of Winterfell, a man of the Night's Watch. I will not father a bastard, he told her. I will not. I will not. You know nothing, Jon Snow, she whispered, her skin dissolving in the hot water, the flesh beneath sloughing off her bones until only skull and skeleton remained, and the pool bubbled thick and red. Well, that ended well. That is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, John 6. What do you think of this one? It'd be weird to call this chapter a warm hug. <laughs> with two books worth of bad news waiting for John and a dream finish that involves his love Egret being melted like she just looked into the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> but here we are. John is home, in a way, and his pals are here with him. Well, most of them. Or some of them. Well, there's Pip and Gren and Eamon and Donal Noy are here, and given its placement in this stretch of the material, it's a bittersweet oasis in a desert of pain and doom. Well said. Uh, looking at the big picture of the story structure, this is pretty clearly the weakest John chapter in Storm of Swords, just because it's transitional. 
In the first half of the book, we had John Among the Wildlings, an espionage story that veered into tragic romance and adventure. In the second half of the book, we get John back among his fellow Watchmen, a war story that steadily builds until Stannis shows up, at which point it shifts into politics with the Lord Commander election and Stannis offering Winterfell to John. This chapter is a way of getting from point A to point B, reacquainting us with Castle Black and at least some of the people who live there. As such, it doesn't stand out as much as all the John chapters before and after, but if you zoom in and take this chapter on its own terms, it's so emotional, all about John's inner all about John's inner turmoil as he makes the transition. John started out as one of the more rote and predictable characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, but he's only gotten more complex and more unique as we've gone along, reflecting his multiple layers of identity, and you really see that here. The John chapters to come post-Red Wedding is that some of the most exciting material in the whole series, and it wouldn't be nearly as exciting without this chapter grounding us in who John is, how he thinks, and how he feels. Like the Sam chapter we just covered, John has his destination set for the wall, both desperately and vaguely aimed south and north respectively at the giant structure dividing the north. It of course makes a great visual landmark at 700 feet tall, hard to miss given that neither John or Sam are really at the top of their navigational games. But all the same, the wall is pulling them in. An object that, of that giant certainly has some gravitational pull. Back in Jamie 6, we talked about Hall being a center of gravity for the War of the Five Kings, but after the upcoming deaths of King Rob and Joffrey, the Wall and King's Landing will become the poles of narrative gravity going forward. The Wall starts by first sucking Sam and John back into its orbit, and soon thereafter, Egret, Mance, Stannis, Melisandre, Alice Karstark, and more and more as the story shifts to this hinge of the world. George puts us in John's headspace right away, which is dominated by pain and fatigue. I feel that. His leg wounds keep tearing open, and he can't get proper rest while a horse given the lack of saddle. Riding a horse without a saddle runs parallel to some of George's other adages. It reminds me a lot of wielding a sword without a hilt, or the discomfort felt while sitting the Iron Throne. We've reached a turning point in John's story. His time as the prodigal action hero who journeyed far north, climbed the Skirling Pass, played double agent with the Wildlings, scaled the Wall, and fought his way to freedom is coming to a close with the upcoming Battle at the Wall. Going into A Dance with Dragons, the focus will be on John the Politician, as Lord Commander Snow will have to deal with Jano Slint, re-garrison the other castles, parlay with Stannis, Melisandre, Tormund, and the Iron Bank. The wound that keeps opening up every time he mounts up is a metaphor for the tension and struggle of his upcoming rule. Any policy that favors the free folk will open fresh scabs among the watch, any aid given Stannis will just make everyone else mad. Ruling can be described as tending to the wounds of your people, but that has finite limits which means other wounds may fester in the meantime or new ones open up. Also festering in John's mind is thoughts of his old comrades. Will they be waiting for him at Castle Black? Some surely will, those that never left for the Great Ranging. But John has to hang on to slim hope for Lord Commander Mormont, Gren, Ed, Sam, and the rest, having seen the devastation at the Fist of the First Men. It sets up the rest of the chapter nicely, hitting that perfect bitter sweetness of knowing some of his pals did make it safely, some did not, and some, like Sam, or later Bran and Rickon, which remain unanswered for now. Egret is foremost in John's mind. I was wrong to love her, I was wrong to leave her. 
No chance, no choice in the realm of love. Immediately, John relates it to Ned's supposed infidelity, making his own vows analogous to that of wedding vows. Again, a Byzantine system of oaths and vows obscuring the right choice in any given moment. And you have to think, you're wrong to love her, you're wrong to leave her, can very much portend how things will shake out with John and Daenerys, especially if the general sequencing of events plays out like in the HBO show. In this case, when I say leave her, I do mean abandon her cause and or kill her, however. (laughs) Details, baby, details. John is in bad shape throughout this chapter, inside and out. He's feverish, he's exhausted, and he's losing a lot of blood because he keeps ripping open that wound. Like you say, that stands in for John's internal divide. Not only in the future with his policies towards Stannis and the Wildlings, but right now, with his loyalty to the Watch put into conflict with his love for Egret. That's another wound he can't help tearing open, again and again. It'll never fully heal. That great line, you were wrong to love her, you were wrong to leave her. It's one of those lines that's just perfect. You can't take out a word. You can't take a syllable out of that or you'll ruin it. The band Manimals have a great concept album about a song of ice and fire called Seven. And in their Jon Snow song, Alone, they use this line, which makes sense. It's poetry. Two lines that only differ by a couple letters. Yet they express the opposite extremes of Jon's soul. You were wrong to love her. That's the Night's Watch side the side that swore an oath to the old gods, the side that still sees the wildlings as he'll think about uh, when Mance shows up as a threat to his father's land, his father's castle, and his father's people. That part of John was ashamed the first time he slept with Egret. A voice in his head that reminded him of his vows told him he was crossing the line. But you were wrong to leave her. That's the free folk side, the side that took a cloak from Mance Raider, made friends with Tormund Giantsbane. That part of John came alive the first time he slept with Egret. As Uncle Benjen told him, you can't really give up love until you know what it is. What both sides have in common is you were wrong. <laughs> no matter where John's loyalties lie, no matter how he looks at it, he screwed everything up. Either way, he betrayed Egret. If he was wrong to love her, well, he deceived her. He put her at risk from her fellow wildlings for no good reason. If he was wrong to leave her, then he has abandoned his one true love. And once again, John falls back on Ned as the standard by which he judges himself. Ned also had divided loyalties. John's existence is proof of that as far as he's concerned. Ah, but Ned eventually went home to Catelyn, and so John has to go home, so to speak, to the Watch. That simple sentiment gets a lot more complicated when you put it into context with R plus L equals J. Ned's divided loyalty wasn't between Catelyn and another lover. It was between Catelyn and his promise to his dead sister. With his love for Robert thrown into the mix because Robert would definitely want John dead if he knew the truth. Ned wasn't so much tempted to stay with someone else as he was haunted by the cost of keeping John's secret, keeping him safe. So even as John draws strength from Ned's memory, justifies his own decision by telling himself it's what Ned would do, John doesn't actually know what Ned did, or how that decision changed the course of John's life. It's also telling that John associates the Night's Watch with Catelyn, given how much Catelyn hated having his ass around at Winterfell. After all, John joined the Watch in large part because of how he was treated as a bastard. Maester Aemon told John that love is the death of duty, but here we also see that duty is the death of love. John is trying to use Ned's example to close up that wound, but it doesn't work. 
Even after Eamon sews him up, John is bleeding on the inside because of the truth Jamie told Catelyn. You just can't keep all your promises. And John actually reminds me of Jamie when he arrives at Moletown here. In Jamie 6, he was able to immediately snap into his role of feudal privilege, uh, snapping orders at Steelshanks and his men even if they didn't actually serve Jamie. That servile mentality just runs so deep. John surely makes an odd sight to the mole men here, and his wildling furs dripping with blood, but he spoke with the Lord's voice, and people leapt to obey, snapping instantly into habit. George hits us with that vibrant imagery once John is in sight of the wall, itself rising like a giant white celestial body over the horizon, a moon to dwarf our own. A binary moonset as our Luke Skywalker looks to the horizon, the wall growing pink and purple in the light of the first dawn. It's been some time since we've seen the wall, and because of oncoming battles, George is going to have to refamiliarize us with its features and geographies over the next couple John chapters. But he doesn't want us to forget what it is first and foremost. A wonder, a terror, a hinge of the world. So he makes sure to emphasize that awe as it comes back into John's storyline. The spectacular gives way to the practical as John rides up to Castle Black. No sentries, no guards posted at the gate, every building seemingly dead. We know the Wildings are at the Watch's back, coming up the King's Road as John had warned the people of Molestown. The lack of anything on his approach immediately shows how ill-prepared they are for an attack from the south. It was already going to be trouble enough with no southern defenses, but at this moment it looks like the Watch is short of even ghosts to man the wall. The lone sign of life is smoke rising from the armory, the very same armory L.C. Jon Snow will make his Oval Office. But for now, it remains the forge of Donal Noy, whose presence brings a smile to both John and my face. Immediately, we learn some news of John's quote-unquote defection to the wildlings is already known. Jarman Buckwell scouts had seen John with Ygritte and the Magnar. John is honest with the one-armed armorer, doesn't deny it, but of course the perception of John as a turncloak is going to drive his story in the latter half of this book, and also be a key point when Bowen Marsh and the mutineers nail the 95 theses to John's smoking corpse at the end of A Dance with Dragons. (laughs) Noy takes this all in stride for now, though, being more friend than interrogator to John and answering his questions on the dismal state of the defenses. Bowen Marsh has sent the remaining Greybeards and Greenboys out in every direction, leaving the main gate at Castle Black undefended. Elementary maneuvers from Mance Raider working wonders on Bowen Marsh, not realizing that Mance is trying to keep the Night's Watch focus away from the main gate. It's an inversion of the ending to M. Night Shyamalan Signs, where a small Pennsylvania family barricade themselves in their basement from the invading aliens. The aliens keep banging at or around the main basement entrance to keep the family's eyes focused there so that perhaps someone can slip in from the coal chute behind, not unlike the wildlings to the south, which John also relays to Noy. In a way, this is a homecoming for the audience as well as John. Castle Black is one of the central settings of the story, up there with Winterfell and King's Landing. But we haven't been back here since early in book two. It's been a structuring absence because both John and Sam have been trying to get back here in their POV chapters. For Sam, Castle Black embodies safety. That's what we saw in our last episode. It means an end to pain, an end to fear. As he told Gilly, once we're there, you can just get warm and eat a hot meal and just relax and not worrying about dying before the day (laughs) is over. On the other hand, Sam also thinks that once they're back in black, he's going to have to make a decision about Gilly. I love that Melisandre line about the wall being a hinge of the world. It's like a door that can open and close. 
It's a border, figuratively as well as literally. It makes manifest the internal divides that haunt these characters. It forces you to choose who you are. For John, when he was with the Wildlings, Castle Black was always waiting in the back of his head. He knew he would have to return here eventually. Doing so is choosing the watch over the Wildlings. It's a betrayal of Egret and everyone else he came to know and care about. He's back to making war on them, holding the wall against them. But by virtue of having ridden with the Wildlings so long, and also by having his, his little kind of order session with Corrin Halfhand not witnessed by anyone else, John is also potentially an outcast among the Watch. Again, wrong to love her, wrong to leave her. Wrong on both sides with no true home, no pack, no family. You can see that divide in the imagery, even before John actually reunites with his fellow Watchmen. Like you said, yeah, there's this awe and majesty with how the wall is described, but it's immediately contrasted with how pathetic Castle Black looks by comparison. George compares the buildings to broken toys. Like the Night's Watch and their war against the wildlings is child's play, compared to the ancient magical struggle given form by the wall looming above it all. And when John gets closer, the castle looks empty. For a second, the first-time reader might wonder if the Thens somehow beat him here and killed everyone in their sleep. But on reread, like you said, it feels less threatening than haunted. John compares it to the abandoned castles along the wall, a ruin of its former self, defeated not by the wildlings, nor even the white walkers, but by time. It's an externalization of how John feels about the Night's Watch right now, and his place in it. His home isn't Winterfell, nor is it among the wildlings. It's this broken and empty castle, dwarfed by its own duty. So he left her for nothing. Until John sees that little curl of smoke, a little ember of a life worth living among the ashes, and finds Donal Noy. The blacksmith is one of a seemingly endless series of mentor figures for Jon Snow. He keeps needing new ones because they keep dying on him. Ned's dead, and so are J.R. Mormont and Corn Halfhand, the latter at Jon's own hand. Uncle Benjen went missing, and for the moment Jon has left behind his wildling dads, Manson Torment. So here, John is left alone with his most humble role model, Donal Noy, the man who taught him class consciousness, made John realize that while Catelyn treated him like an unworthy outsider at Winterfell, he was an arrogant elite in the eyes of his fellow watch recruits. Donal Noy set John on the right path. Without him, John might have never been in the position to help Sam when he first arrived on the wall, so he might never have been groomed for command by Elsie Mormont and then the Halfhand. That was in book one. The only time we saw Donald Noy in book two is when he and John had that conversation about all the new kings popping up. And Donald had that great little metaphor about the Baratheon brothers as different kinds of metal. Robert as the true steel, Stannis as, as bitter, fragile iron, Renly as shiny, bright copper. Again, tying into the question of leadership and how to be worthy of it. And of course, a couple John chapters from now, Donald Noy will put John in temporary command of Castle Black and then immediately die. And that, more than anything else, sets up John to be elected Lord Commander. It gives him credibility. He's had some authentic leadership experience on the wall. So Donald Noy is a central figure in John's rise to power, reluctant as it often is. And it all could have gone differently right here. Turns out John won't have to decide whether or not to keep his defection a secret because some Watchmen scouts already saw him riding with the wildlings. As Donal says, that might be reason enough for him to pull down his sword and cut John's guts out right then and there. But he doesn't. Because as well as a mentor, Donal is a friend. John smiles to see him. The first smile from him in a long time that doesn't have a secret behind it. 
Even in his most intimate moments with Egret, he was lying to her about who he is and what he wants out of life. Home, real home, is about not having to pretend to be something you're not. That mutual honesty and respect, that trust, is what saves John's life here. It also helps that Donal Noy is a smart dude who looks for <laughs> evidence rather than just trusting secondhand information. He sees that John is wearing a sheepskin cloak rather than a black one, but also that he's bearing the literal wounds of his identity struggle, the scar from the eagle attack north of the wall, and also Egret's arrow wound. A wildling arrow, Donal says. It's not a question, John thinks, it's Donal taking it as proof that John is still on his side. I mean, he must be, or why would the wildlings be shooting at him? So even with one arm, Donal helps John to go see Maester Aemon. As Tyrion would say, it's the cripples, bastards, and broken things who are left to hold the world and each other together now. Maester Aemon enters stage right with the vitality of a man 80 years his younger. He's quick to organize the effort to treat John's wounds while getting to the heart of John's tale. He instantly catches John's usage of we in his retelling. Whether John winces at his pain or the knowledge that nothing gets past Maester Aemon, who's to say? Right around this point, halfway through the chapter, the flow of information dramatically reverses. This chapter was poised to set up John raising the alarm for the Night's Watch, doing a Paul Revere ride through Molestown before alerting who's left at the wall. But from here to the end of the chapter, it's about what John is going to learn about what happened to Mormont, the Great Ranging, Sam, and later Winterfell. It's a nice little reversal. It's true to the promise of this chapter about exchanging and transferring information, but in a way least expected. We know all the news as readers, but with the characters being so rich and having such robust interiority, we are eager to see them react to the things we already know. The bad news is both personal and political to John. He's lost a mentor, thinks he's lost his best friend, and the institution he swore his life to is in shambles. Politically and strategically, the loss of the old bear and most of the able-bodied fighting men puts them between a rock and a hard place, both taking the form of wildlings on either side of the wall. The watch is not what it was, and even what it was may not have been enough to stop man's radar. That's the bad news. Good news is, Gren, Ed, Giant, and some other quote-unquote good men made it back. And as for the in-between news, Bowen Marsh is now acting Lord Commander until a choosing takes place. Of course, the one we will see at the end of this book that completes John's arc. John thinks on the likely candidates, what few there are after the losses the Watch has endured. There will obviously be a lot of time to discuss the election of the Cotter Pikes and Dennis Malisters of the world, but I do want to call back to Catelyn 5, where Rob, Cat, and his war council discuss the Malisters, Ironborn, and their perennial enmity. We will have to call out how George seeds these sort of general generational relationships long before they come up. And in Cat 5, George has you thinking that the feud may be relevant for Rob and Cat's storyline, but it is really meant for John and the Night's Watch election at the end of A Storm of Swords. That's a great point about the reversal of information in terms of who's talking and who's listening. Like I said, they already know John's been riding with the Wildlings, so he doesn't have to tell anyone that. And while a lot of the information John learns is familiar to the reader, George does hit us with something new. Bowen Marsh turns out to be the dumbest motherfucker alive. <laughs> Maybe not fair, but look, I know nothing of the ways of war, and even I wouldn't fall for the obvious trap Mance Raider sets up here. Like John says, the gate is here, the attack is here. The open gate is a choke point, just like Moat Kaelin on the other side of Stark territory. 
That's why Sam was so worried about where he and Gilly were in the last episode. Because it wasn't good enough to find the wall, he had to find the gate. That's why Bran wanted his little fellowship to take him to Castle Black. Not only to see John again, but because that's how you get through the wall. It doesn't matter if individual bands of wildlings show up near Greyguard or Icemark or all the other haunted houses along the wall, because the only way Mance is getting his people through the wall, all of them, is bringing them through the gate. Bowen Marsh should have known enough to ignore those distractions and keep the garrison here. And he also should have known better than to get involved in the pitched battle against the Weeper we hear about later in the book. That is just a criminal waste of men. The Watch is vastly outnumbered by the Wildlings. Their big advantage is the defensive force multiplier offered by the Wall itself. Like John says in his next chapter, the Wildlings can make all the fierce noises they want. It doesn't matter as long as they're down there and we're up here. Spreading yourself thin, or worse, meeting them in open battle, negates that advantage. Marsh just doesn't know how to fight this kind of war. The Night's Watch already had a brain drain situation going on, as Elsie Mormont told Tyrion, but the loss of so many of the more experienced rangers, Benjen, the Halfhand, even Thorne Smallwood, asshole that he was, it's really hurting their ability to carry on. All of which, of course, exists to put both John and the remaining men at Castle Black in the underdog position, heightening the stakes, gaining our sympathy. And same goes for the information we are aware of coming into this chapter, that Elsie Mormont was killed by his own men, and Winterfell has fallen to Theon. George focuses our attention on John's emotional reactions to the news, of course. He's devastated about the old bear, he's confused about his brothers after seeing Summer at Queen's Crown, but George is also cutting off the Night's Watch from any possible source of help. John can't count on Mormont coming back with reinforcements to take charge, and he can't count on the Northern Lords who served his father, saving the day as they and their ancestors have in years past. Nope. This time, it is all on the Brothers in Black. It sets John up to move into a leadership position, something he was already starting to do back in Book 1 among his fellow recruits, but then George put him in espionage territory for a while, so now he has to switch gears back to John as a commander in combat. It's not the most important thing in the world, but I do love Eamon telling John to shut up and take his opium. <laughs> We've seen characters, namely Jamie, refuse pain relievers so as to not have their mind clouded or full arms taken by disgraced maesters. This is not an uncommon trope in media, often chalked up to male bravado. But sometimes, you do need to shut up and take your medicine. I, I appreciate Eamon being firm with John here, who on top of being seriously injured, is also reeling from learning the entire world has gone to shit while he was backpacking up north. <laughs> Eamon, on top of being an expert surgeon and stern caregiver, also flexes that sexy brain of his. He immediately understands John when he says the word Magnar. He knows it's a title, while Donal Noy thinks of the Magnar as a house name, Lords and Skagos. Skagos is a big unknown to us right now, but I did seize on the fact that Noy called him the Magnar in a similar way the mountain clans are referred to as the Wool and the Flint, and in turn think of Eddard Stark as the Ned. We've been fed rumors that the Skagosi are wildling, unicorn-riding cannibals, but perhaps the Magnar indicates they have more in common with the mountain clans of the north than the free folk beyond the wall, where at the very least, some cultural exchange could have happened between the two groups, as we see that the Skagosi at least do some business with the Watch as well. Or it's just a definite article that George used and means nothing whatsoever. <laughs> The Thens themselves also challenge what much of the Watch thinks of the Wildlings. 
Unlike the sheepskinned raiders and villagers they know, the Magnar's men are armored and have military discipline, which requires a different set of strategies than the looser base of Mance's army. And of course, Mance has rightly put his most disciplined group south of the wall, where little stands in their way in terms of defensive fortifications. Speaking of Aemon being on the ball, he's also immediately attuned to John's mention of the Horn of Winter. If the most learned character who is privy to generations of hidden lore stops what he's doing and raises his ears, the reader should pay attention. Whether the horn is real and or with Samuel Tarly or wherever, that Aemon takes it very seriously should tell us that we need to too if we weren't already. Also in the conversation, he drops Egret's name, and Donal Noy immediately cuts John off. Who is Egret? Which, good question, Donnie. John's relationship with Egret is the perfect stand-in for John's conflicted sense of self and the loyalties at this moment. She acts as an externalization of all those tiny conflicts raging within his heart. He repeats the wrong-to-love-her-wrong-to-leave-her bit as he tries to explain that she both is and isn't one of the wildlings, not unlike him. And then he fesses up to his relationship with her. And I really love how Donal and Eamon do not ask any follow-up questions here. Those can wait for a more pointed time, but the information is now out there. And going back to how this scene is an inverse of Kyburn mending Jamie's arm in Jamie 5, instead of saying he'll scream loudly, John says he will not scream, though he absolutely, though he absolutely does, breaking that vow as well. There's a lot to quibble about the Thrones adaptation of Jon Snow, especially in the latter seasons. Not that dumb Aaron Timbos can't work at times, but it really <laughs> sold a lot of Jon's smart moves as Lord Commander Short, while not highlighting his shortcomings well enough in that position. But I like that they kept Jon's honesty, evidenced here in this chapter where he is completely forthcoming about Egret. As Jon says in Season 7, when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. Then there are no more answers, only better and better lies. It feels both true to Ned Stark's purported ethos, but also ironically gets at the fact that Ned Stark may have kept the best lie of them all. Yep, I love that, that even as this idea of Ned inspires John, it's, it's not actually who Ned, Ned was, because Ned kept the secret just that well, even from John himself. And yeah, John's struggle here isn't whether to tell the truth about Egret. He doesn't hesitate, even though this information could and does get him in trouble with less friendly members of the Night's Watch. The struggle is that John doesn't really know how to explain Egret or his relationship with her. It's just too complicated and contradictory to make sense of. Egret, as John thinks, is warm and funny, and yet she also slid a helpless innocent man's throat without a moment's hesitation. Neither of those cancel each other out, they're both true. Something George does well with John that he also does very well with Jamie is show us conflict between his thoughts and words. John confesses that Egret is among the wildlings preparing to attack them, but tries to distinguish her from the rest by saying she's young, only a girl in truth. Well, no, she's not. She's older than John, actually, and in his thoughts he's not thinking about how he has to take care of her and she's wayward. No, he's thinking that he's in love with her. John is desperate to deny Egret's agency because he's desperate to deny his own. I broke my vows, he sobs, because I wasn't strong enough. And that flows so perfectly into the surgery. I love how George writes the pain as something physically huge, and John feels himself shrinking like there's nothing but the pain. Just like how Castle Black, representing his oaths, seemed so insignificant in the shadow of the wall. He becomes a child, whimpering in the dark, all his defenses stripped away. 
and all he can think is egret. I had to. Another great succinct line. All the more powerful because it's not clear what exactly he's referring to. Does he mean telling his fellow watchmen about her? Or abandoning her to ride back to Castle Black? Or is he apologizing for loving her in the first place? I had to. I wasn't in control. I'm, I'm a child pretending to be a man. I don't know what I'm doing. The darkness he describes makes me think of the crypt of Winterfell, which John will dream about right after Egret dies. That's where the dead go, down in the dark. Everyone John has lost. This is a crucible. John is being broken down so he can emerge reborn, so to speak. More dedicated to the watch than ever, but through the lens of his time with the wildlings, especially her. John faints and is in and out of sleep, thinking of Egret all the while. Vaguely reminds me of Brienne after she's captured by the Brotherhood in Feast, half unconscious and muttering about Jamie Lannister. Hell, it's also got a passing resemblance to Ned's fever dream in Eddard 10 A Game of Thrones, or Jamie fading in and out himself of his phantom pain after losing his hand. Pip and Gren are there to greet John upon waking, a nice bit of warmth amidst all the pain and bad news. Some of their other friends made it back too, but sadly, not Sam. Gren is quick to tell of Sam's heroics, but more ashamed to admit that they had to leave him. Gren fills us in on how they tried to drag Sam away. Recall in Sam 2, he just clearly dissociated until the Craster wives kicked his ass into gear. John is wroth with this, but I find it perversely ironic. He laments Gren and Ed leaving Sam there after he spent the entire chapter kicking himself for leaving Egret. It doesn't take long for John to want to leap out of bed and get to work. Like all of us living under capitalism, we've been conditioned to go into the office even if we have a bad cold. But his friends stop him. They're all over the defenses, and Eamon shuffles back in to tell John to give himself some time. John has his own Cambellian journey arc laid out for him, and in more traditional fare, even an injured hero will valiantly limp to arms. Hell, John will do that himself. Think Michael Jordan's flu game, that kind of stuff. (laughs) And as a Chicagoan, I will not hear your he was actually hungover rumor mongers. But I like this moment because John's community has his back. They know what to do, and John himself needs to rest. It doesn't all fall on John to resolve everything. He's not quite the protagonist of reality. That's your half-brother Bran, buddy. Uh-huh. John, with his community here supporting him, will eventually heal, and despite some twists and turns in an ice cell, will rise to power on the backs of his friends. And it will be the absence of these very friends that will feed into John's great fall in A Dance with Dragons. Absolutely. And so far, John's chapters in this book have been about him trying to both integrate himself into the wildling community and keep them at arm's length. Now that's behind him, and the coin flips over to the other side. John has to reintegrate himself back into the community of the Night's Watch, and there will be major obstacles to that, and their names are Jano Slint and Alistair Thorne, but we start with John's friends. Reminders that he really does have a life here, people he has helped in the past who are here now to help him. And those bonds among a band of brothers calls back to Tolkien. When Gren says he fell asleep waiting for John to wake up, I think of how Sam, the other Sam, Hobbit Sam, fell asleep waiting for Frodo to wake up at Rivendell. And then the reverse happens after the destruction of the ring and the eagles save them. <laughs> Sam falls asleep, Frodo waits around for him, and then falls asleep waiting for him. <laughs> this is John's own fellowship, sadly lacking his Sam right now. And so now John has yet another dead brother who isn't actually dead. They're just piling up. Sadly, there's also so little soapbox material in this episode, so I want to stay on the concept of healing here, which Eamon says John will need time to do. 
Specifically, I want to shout out Healing Justice, an anti-capitalist response to concepts like self-care and wellness, which are highly individual and consumerized methods for making oneself whole. Like all movements with justice in its banner, disability justice, reproductive justice, etc., it targets the capitalist systems that cause harm, specifically to people of color and people of marginalized genders. This can be very literal healing. Communities of color are often ill-equipped in terms of emergency response and healthcare, including hospitals, especially in America where those things aren't guaranteed to its people, and quality varies heavily by class. Healing justice can also apply to people harmed by police and prisons, both physical and mental trauma. Healing Justin posits that healing from harm is a communal process, not an individual one. Mutually, we must heal together from systemic harms, and together we can fill in the gaps left by institutions, very similar to the concept of mutual aid. Individual health is contingent on collective well-being. Through community, be it geographically local or politically organized or even the church, which you can see spiritual healing being at the core of the 60 civil rights movements in the U.S. South, we can take time to find peace, solidarity, and recovery that will allow us to come back stronger. This is extremely important in activist circles because activism and organizing is exhausting and often life-shortening. The next time someone mentions people get more conservative as they age, think about how often left-wing activists and radicals die young, often due to exhaustion and disease if they aren't flat-out assassinated by the powers that be. Clearly, I am veering way off topic here, but it's a worthwhile concept to introduce and hope listeners may investigate on their own. To get started, I'd recommend Charlene Carruthers' book on organizing titled Unapologetic, A Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. That's great stuff, man. Maybe that Healing Justice chat isn't too off topic because John's (laughs) about to get traumatic news in spades. (laughs) Winterfell has fallen. His brothers are dead. Theon betrayed Rob. Most telling is the narrative that has emerged, coached up by the Bolton, surely, that Theon put Winterfell to the torch and Ramsay is avenging the Starks by flaying Theon as they speak. Here we see a clear disinformation campaign waged by House Bolton, which is going to expand following the Red Wedding. It's not enough for House Stark to fall, but adding a narrative where the Boltons avenge them helps boost their legitimacy and play to hold the North, in addition to the authorial backing they will receive from Tywin and the Iron Throne following the massacre at the Twins. And we can see why this disinformation campaign works. It includes enough truth peppered throughout both the obvious deceptions and misinformation to provide enough legitimacy. Right after this chapter, although a couple episodes from now for us, we're going to get Catalan 6, in which Roose Bolton shows off a piece of skin taken from one of Theon's fingers. George uses Theon as a structuring absence in Book 3. He had a bunch of POV chapters in Book 2, and then vanished from sight. In retrospect, this was a really smart move showing some restraint that pays dividends down the line. The showrunners of Game of Thrones were put in an awkward position here because leaving an actor off for a whole season of television is very different than leaving out a character who only exists in the book. I mean, then again, they did it with Bran. (laughs) But there's one of the ripple effects that George has talked about here. Because the showrunners chose not to include the whole Ramsay disguised as Reek plot in Season 2, they had to invest some time actually introducing Ramsay in Season 3. So you got the Theon plot, which was pretty repetitive. It it has its moments, but it's overall probably the weakest part of Season 3. It works so much better on the page, where you catch up with Theon in A Dance with Dragons all at once in his new status as Reek. 
and you are told a lot of what happened to him, but without seeing it, your imagination goes to work. And George can focus us on the aftermath, which is actually the more interesting part anyway. Here, George just reminds us about Theon so we don't think he's dead or just gone from the story forever. Yeah, that kind of didn't work on me, George, because I just completely forgot about Theon during most of A Storm of Swords. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should have mentioned him more than twice. Yeah, it's okay. No, I think George did fine. It's just I was so... When he's not a point of view chapter, it's just very easy to forget. That's very true. <laughs> John's also confused about Theon, who he never really liked, but could not imagine doing the things they claim. Which, to be fair to Theon, he didn't do all of it. But thinking now, especially after that Alfie Allen Kit Harrington scene that ended season 7 where they talk about their torn identities, I wonder if John wonders if there is some weakness like this in himself. Given the prejudice against bastards and their assumed treacherousness in this society, John's standing at Winterfell was maybe closer to that of Theon's than his half-brothers. This is at the root of Catelyn's argument against naming John heir to the North in the chapter we talked about a couple weeks back. And later this book, John's going to be asked by Stannis to burn down a part of Winterfell himself in order to confirm his legitimization. John's thoughts on Winterfell remind me a lot of Bran 7 from A Clash of Kings, almost to the point where it's an asynchronous call and response with the end of the, that Bran chapter. John here asks, and Winterfell, gray granite, oak and iron, crows wheeling around the towers, steam rising off the hot pool in the godswood, the stone king sitting on their thrones. How could Winterfell be gone? And then you can imagine Bran answering, The stone is strong, the roots of the trees go deep, and under the ground the kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Mm, that's a great catch. I love the, uh, love the imagery in both of those. And all of it feeds right into Jon's dream sequence that ends the chapter. It's a favorite of mine, even though it, it isn't as elaborate as something like Jamie's recent dream or Bran's vision back in book one. It just really sums up John's whole deal at this point in his story. Bear's egret, the woman he loves, laughing and getting naked and splashing around in the water just like she did back in that cave. Except now, it's not the cave. Now it's Winterfell, the home he was just told was no more. It wasn't the wildlings who burned down Winterfell, of course, it was Ramsay, and he framed Theon for it. But one of the reasons Jon is feeling so conflicted and guilty is because he fears what the wildling invasion would mean for Winterfell. Eager talked wistfully about living in a tower together, after. And now Jon's subconscious is showing us his fears about what after would look like. He wouldn't be able to enjoy himself, live his life with the woman he loves, because Ned would always be watching him from the Weirwood. And Bran, I guess, more literally, but the way John thinks about it, it's Ned. His father's face. That's what flashed in John's memory when he was ordered to kill that man at Queen's Crown and refused. Ned inspires John, but also haunts him in the way that parents and mentor figures often do. Ned's memory leads John to mercy, but also to guilt. John can't get over being a bastard, being a living embodiment of his father's shame and weakness and failure, or at least that's how he thinks about it. Even as he longs for Winterfell, mourns its destruction, part of him feels like he never belonged here in the first place. In the dream, he thinks of himself as the blood of Winterfell, a man of the Night's Watch. But wait, John, you can't be both of those things at once, any more than you could stay loyal to both Egret and your brothers in black. You have to choose. That ties back into his decision to stay at the Wall instead of riding south to rejoin Rob. And it ties forward to Stannis' offer of Winterfell, which is contingent on him burning the heart tree he's dreaming about here. 
And once again, there's the dramatic irony of R plus L equals J. Knowing that Ned didn't father John at all, and that John might not even be a bastard if Rhaegar and Lyanna did, seek it, did secretly get married as they did in the show. You know nothing, Jon Snow, as Egret says in the dream, takes on a new layer of meaning. He very literally does not know who he is. And the cost of that identity struggle is blood. As we see here in the unshakable nightmare image of Egret dissolving into the hot water, leaving only her skeleton floating in a pool of blood. Their passion burns so hot it melts them from within, and Jon knows that he can't go home again, wherever home even is. So, moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, John asks Donal Noy if Ghost has made it back yet. They don't, they don't talk about it for a while, but they just, they, George puts that in there briefly. It's a plot point that will keep cropping up in the background of John and Sam chapters, before the direwolf finally shows up near the end of the book to signal John to stay in the Night's Watch, rather than accept Stannis' offer of Winterfell and, like I said, burn the heart tree in the process. And George has to strike that balance, like with Theon, of reminding you about it throughout the book without outright tipping his hand. Whenever Ghost is not on screen, all the characters should be asking, where is Ghost? Where's Poochie? And exactly, John gets in his little, his little where's Poochie mention here with Donald Noy. He brings it up again with Sam later that he doesn't even dream of Ghost anymore. So it's all, all the more powerful. I love that bit when John is outside thinking his deep thoughts. And he's like, man, I'm just, I'm so hungry for Winterfell. I'm hungry for it. Like I'd be hungry for a deer all raw and full of red rare meat. And he goes, wait a minute. Those aren't people thoughts. Those are, those are dog thoughts. Where's my dog? And Ghost comes out of the forest. Great stuff. Great stuff. So for theory and discussion, not a, not a big uh, juicy piece of material to work with here. Not a lot of big theories going on in this chapter. So I just wanted to talk about the, the decision that John is tormenting himself here about whether he did the right thing for leaving Egret behind. What, what do you think? Was he wrong to love her or leave her? Is there one of those that would have been less wrong? <laughs> I really don't know, because I don't see how things go well if he marches up with the Wildlings at Castle Black. Um, I, I re- if John was going to do anything different, I think he had to have d- done it with Mance. Like, he had to be like, hey, Good let's like, set up some kind of parlay or do something. Like, if you're sending me... I don't think that... He's kind of stuck here, because um, if he- the Wildlings are the type of people... Um, and I don't want to be like anti wildling prejudice here, but if they see John like holding back or not doing his part when they like attack Castle Black, I can see them just killing him on the spot, you know, throw him off the top of the wall if he, you know, betrays them kind of stuff. Um, so I think he had to, and he did it in, I don't want to call it a bloodless way. Actually, it was very bloody, but he himself did none of the bloodletting. He just kind of took an opening and ran for it. Um, but I, it's really hard to say, um, just because pretty much everyone involved is going to end up dead, I guess, including John <laughs> to some extent. Um, but I don't see how, if anything plays out differently, that it ultimately changes what's happening with Mans coming down and then Stannis eventually. Like Those are forces beyond John's own personal decision here. Um, it would just be what makes sense for his heart in conflict with itself. And I think he would beat himself up either way about it. Yeah, really well said. I think you make a great point that the the time to make a deal is with is with Mance, which is what John tries to do once he meets with Mance again. But then Stannis kind of throws a wrench in the works, and there really wasn't a deal to make because John wasn't in charge at that point. Janos Slint and Alistair Thorne were, and they wanted John to just kill Mance. But yeah, there's no there's no deal to be made uh, with Stir, not one bit, just because of the Watch is such a, a vulnerable position. 
And I think if you, if John somehow wills himself into fighting alongside the Wildlings, even including the fight at Castle Black, I think the big thing that changes would be that Stannis would show up to find Mance running the wall. And that's, that's a very different scenario that I think still ends up in bloodletting between them, but I think Mance is in a much stronger position. And that's a, you know, that's a whole new, a whole new dimension of the plot we don't get to see because Stannis shows up is how Mance handles the Umbers and the other Northern Lords and how he handles that integration. I think you can make the case it's useful to have a, a more kind of threshold figure like John or Stannis helping with that integration, but the costs are so brutal. Even when Stannis lets the wildlings through the wall, he forces them to give up their gods. So it's, uh, you know, I think much as I mourn the people who die, who would die at Castle Black, I think, uh, there's yeah, there's no there's no solution to the problem at the wall that doesn't involve the cost of blood being borne by someone, and it ends up being the wildlings. I think just because of as of how things turn out, you know, part of me is like John, you should have just run off with Egret, just the two of you. You should you really just should have stayed in the cave. You should have abandoned both armies, and you know, had had little cannibal children down there, raised yourself a whole little cannibal civilization. But that probably wasn't in the works uh, for John either. His just as a uh, he's just got that tormented sense of chivalry that I think wasn't going to allow him to exist anywhere but here. So that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, John 6. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including early access to our regular episodes and multiple exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings and Succession, and maybe even a special episode on The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, over on My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. So my next Lord of the Rings episode is going to be coming... Out, out for all five dollar and above patrons next week that's going to be book six chapter four the field of Cormallon, the chapter right after frodo saves the day that's going to be out for like i said for all five dollar and above patrons as will our next star wars episode and i did say our because we're doing this one together kicking off the original trilogy we're going to be doing that the first week of june for all of our five dollar and above patrons but next time in a song of ice and fire we're going to be doing like i said two chapters together a storm of swords aria nine and ten in which aria goes on a road trip with her new best friend sandor clegane and yeah sandor is basically the embodiment of drinking and driving so i don't i don't think it's going to work out that well it's going to end in a car crash i'll tell you that much i'm amazed that sandor still has a license i suspect (laughs) that's a fake so thanks again for listening and we will see you next time in westeros for a storm of swords aria nine and ten